no uterus, no opinion. Abortion advocates have long said that men should be silent on the issue of abortion, but real men don't turn a blind eye to the victimization of women and children. They help protect them by fighting the evil that seeks to prey on the vulnerable. We will debunk this sexist argument, examine the state of the modern man, and discuss how and why men should engage. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. So, as I said, no uterus, no opinion. So if you're a man, stop listening to this. In fact, you should shut down my show because I am a male. Now, we have been hearing this argument for so long. This has been an overly recycled and disgusting argument that essentially is a sexist argument, right? That discounts the positions of men purely based on their gender. So we are going to examine sort of the state of men in our world and in our country today and how and why men should care about the issue and engage and defend the unborn. But first, I just want to debunk this argument. First, let's just let's just throw this argument into the ash heap of history and get rid of it once and for all. And hopefully this will equip you to do that yourself in your own life. Because frankly, if you're a guy and you're listening to this, you've heard this argument longer, probably if, longer than I have, many of you. And you've probably been sort of frozen up by it, right? You, you haven't wanted to come off as a male chauvinist. You're probably thinking, no, I really care about women, <laughs> but maybe I'm not knowing exactly how to articulate that or respond to those who have said that your gender disqualifies you from having any meaningful debate on the issue of abortion. So there are about, oh gosh, six different major problems with this argument. So we're going to step through each one together now, and we're going to debunk this and equip you to do the same. This is a disingenuous sham of an argument. It is so cynical and disingenuous. Here's why. Those in the abortion rights movement have absolutely no problem with men speaking on abortion if those men are pro-choice. No problem with it. As long as you're ideologically conformed to the pro-choice position. Then... They want you to come join the women and hashtag shout your abortion. That's why it's so disingenuous. They don't actually want men to shut up on abortion, only pro-life men, <laughs> you see. So this is, this is ideological snobbery that seeks to, to only treat those with dignity who think like you do, which plays right into the abortion worldview, right? That your value comes on how I perceive you not on your intrinsic dignity and worth. So of course, those who support abortion are going to demonize and attack men who think differently than them. Furthermore, what about pro-life women? If the whole argument, again, is that, is that no uterus, no opinion, I guess you don't really believe that if it's, a, if it's the uterus of a pro-life woman. <laughs> she has a uterus. She just doesn't think we should be killing and murdering and dismembering unborn children in the womb. So this is, this is complete ideological snobbery. Furthermore, another version of this argument you may have heard is that if you can't get pregnant, right, you should shut up on abortion or you, do, you don't have the right to have an opinion. Really? Are you really going to tell every barren woman that? Are you going to tell every postmenopausal woman that she has no more right to have an opinion on abortion because she can't get pregnant? 
pretty pretty sexist across both sides of the aisle there. So there, there's your first problem with the argument. It's ideologically snob, snobbish because it really just treats those as valuable who share your same ideology because you're perfectly fine with pro-choice men speaking up and you don't like when pro-life women speak up. The second problem with this argument is that it's historically ignorant and, and has no understanding of the circumstances surrounding the legalization of Roe versus Wade. Or they know exactly how Roe v. Wade was legalized, but they're ignoring the facts in order to advance their pro-woman agenda. Here's what I mean by that. There were nine men on the Supreme Court in 1973. That decision went 7-2, which means that seven men voted for a woman's right to get an abortion. How dare they speak up their opinions on abortion? So according to your argument, we need to overturn Roe versus Wade immediately. So I'm glad you agree with me. Roe versus Wade should be overturned because men are not allowed to speak on abortion. No uterus, no opinion. So we need to, we need to retroactively vote on Roe v. Wade and make sure that only women are voting on it. No, see, of course, they're, they're perfectly happy that Roe v. Wade is as it is. And they don't care that there were seven men who voted for it. They just care that those men were pro-choice. Thirdly, this argument begs the question because we would never accept this type of reasoning if it was any other type of injustice, right? We would never accept the reasoning that says that you can only speak out against injustices if you're the correct gender. We would never agree with that. So for example, should women be silent when men rape little boys? Apparently, it doesn't, it doesn't affect women. It's, it's, it's men who are male raping little boys who are male. So it's a male issue. So I guess women should shut up, including the mothers of the boys who are being raped. You need to shut up too. If this ideology is consistent, that is what a pro-choice advocate would have to tell to a mother whose little son was just raped by their 40-year-old neighbor because it's a man's issue. So shut up. No penis, no opinion. Do we really like that? No, of course we don't. So this is disingenuous, it's snobbish, and it's sexist, and it discounts people's positions based off of their gender. But because we understand that all people should speak out against injustice, we don't believe that that's the correct way to treat people if it's men raping little boys. But the pro-choice movement accepts that reasoning when it's abortion. So they're dehumanizing the unborn, treating it as a non-human in order to say that only women should be able to speak about abortion. The fourth problem with this argument is, is uh, sort of just an additional point regarding the application of this reasoning in real life. Okay, so, so to say that only women should speak on abortion is, is to say that only those involved in the decision of abortion should be making those decisions because legally men have no voice. Women can kill their unborn children, get an abortion, and the fathers have no legal right currently to stop that from happening. So I so so let's expand that reasoning. Should only generals be allowed to discuss the morality of war? Because similarly, they're the ones making the decisions. Just like the mother's making the decision to kill her baby, the generals are making the strategic decisions that lead to the death of people. Innocent or not, they're making those decisions. So I guess the American public is disqualified from debating the morality of unjust or just war. I mean, it's, 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 so, it's so ridiculous. It's so pathetic because they don't actually believe this. And they're using it as a smear against men that they don't like.
in order to silence them. And perhaps you felt silenced. Here's how you can, can respond. Fourthly, this is a gender-based sexist argument that treats men and their perspectives as less purely based on their gender. And as Frank Beckwith, a Christian philosopher and author, says, arguments don't have sexual organs. <laughs> if I say it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, therefore abortion is wrong, and you tell me, yeah, but you have a penis, so shut up. That's a sexist argument. You're a sexist. You're attacking my gender to disqualify my, pos my position, and you're boiling down my thoughts, position, and my entire self to just my gender and then writing me off. What could be more sexist than that? And for a pro-choice movement that says that they decry and disavow and hate sexism, they're pretty sexist towards pro-life men. So again, th this is an ad hominem attack, and it's also a, a sexist attack. Now, lastly, this argument is absolute reproductive nonsense. It just discounts the nature of reproduction, basically. Because why? It takes two to tango, baby. <laughs> that child is only in your womb, only in your uterus, because of a male, because of the father. And to discount his position entirely and say he has no voice that holds any weight in the decision regarding that abortion is 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 disgusting that that child is only there because of the man and his his opinion and his voice in the matter should be equally respected but sadly right now in our country men have literally no voice on the issue of abortion because it's completely legal and completely up to the woman now following this same reasoning right that whoever carries the child and is the correct gender has a, the opinion on abortion and the other gender does not, what if we just, what if we just flip the tables, right? Um, what if we said that it, what if, what if instead it was the man who carried the child, that it was men who had uteruses, they were the one who were pregnant. And so should women and mothers therefore have absolutely zero say in whether the father with a uterus has the right to arrange the dismemberment of that child? I mean, just in, in that reality as a thought experiment, if that's the reality, should women be completely silenced? What if they wanted that child? What if they wanted to be a mother? Wouldn't it be sexist to say that they don't have any opinion because they're female and don't have wombs? I think so. So why is it not sexist in reality when women carry children and the fathers are silenced purely because of their gender? Additionally, why should men have no say in whether their unborn son or daughter is killed? How is that just? Just, just putting aside all of the, the ad hominem attacks on the gender of men, wh why should men even be silenced in the first place? They wouldn't be silenced if that was a toddler. They wouldn't be silenced if that was a newborn child that the mother was contemplating to kill. But they're silenced because that baby is six inches away in the mother's womb. Of course, fathers should have a moral opinion that matters regarding the, the life of their child that hangs in the balance. So those are the, the six major flaws with this argument, no uterus, no opinion, that attacks the gender of men and then discredits their positions and opinions on abortion based off of their gender. So moving forward, what is the role of men? Okay, obviously this argument is disingenuous, it's ideologically snobbish, 
and it's an ad hominem attack. But but what is the role of men in this issue? Because we have been told to be silenced for so long, and many people have played into that. Certainly pro-choice men have played into that. Either either they support the right or they just stay silent, and they believed the lie that they should have no voice on the issue of abortion. So obviously we all understand, right? We all agree, most of us, that parents are important. Now, obviously there's a movement to redefine what being a parent and mother and father even means, but most Americans understand that parents are important and the role of a father is well is equally important to the role of a mother. And ideally we want both together, married and raising their biological children. And the research has suggested that this is actually the best arrangement you can have. Ryan Anderson from the Heritage Foundation wrote an excellent article that's really more of a synopsis of some of his larger works in in books called Marriage, What It Is, Why It Matters, and the Consequences of Redefining It. This was written before Obergefell. And he cites a study published by a left-leaning research institution called Child Trends. And this is what they found. It is not simply the presence of two parents, but the presence of two biological parents that seems to support children's development. The the findings go on and they say, research clearly demonstrates that family structure matters for children. And the family structures that help children the most is a family headed by two biological parents in a low-conflict marriage. Children in single-parent families children born to unmarried mothers, and children in stepfamilies or cohabiting relationships face higher risks of poor outcomes. There is thus value for children in promoting strong, stable marriages between biological parents. The best longitudinal and exhaustive studies and research that we have have all reached the same conclusion, even from left-leaning research institutions like Child Trends. So if a man's role as a father to his children matters after they're born, which is what the research is pointing to and suggesting, then it is perfectly reasonable for pro-lifers to argue that his role as a father matters just as much before his children are born. Because the science is clear. The baby is a baby. (laughs) Living things only reproduce after their own kind. The unborn child is a distinct living and whole human being from the moment of conception. And so that, that father's role in his children's life matters just as much before they're born, arguably more, because oftentimes his child's literal life hangs in the balance. And it's a life that he has to fight for in order for him to fulfill his God given role as a father. So in one second, we're going to discuss why men should care deeply about ending abortion and fighting on behalf of unborn children and why you should care about that regardless of religious affiliation, why you should seek to end abortion and hate abortion, um, whether you're a Christian or not. And then we're going to examine the current state of the modern man and how we got here. But first, I have an exciting announcement. This fall, in partnership with Students for Life of America, I'm going on the road for my university speaking tour primarily on the West Coast, but who knows, I may end up in Texas or somewhere else. And I'm going to be discussing why abortion is genocide. Abortion is genocide is the name of my speaking tour. And this is important because we have failed to realize the fatal misstep and repetition of history 
that is the abortion juggernaut. Genocide always entails the dehumanization of an entire class of human beings in order to justify their mistreatment and slaughter. That was true in the Holocaust. That was true with slavery. And the same fatal ideological misstep is happening in the issue of abortion. Now, obviously, abortion is circumstantially different than the Holocaust or slavery. But the point is that the same justifications that were offered in defense of the Holocaust and slavery are offered in defense of abortion. Namely, dehumanize those that you want to eliminate. Convince society that they're not persons and don't have value, so it becomes more easy to rationalize their mistreatment or slaughter. We need to begin thinking about abortion in this larger historical context because genocide should be deeply concerning to all of us. So I'm going to be taking this to Berkeley. I'm going to be taking this to Cal State Long Beach. I'm going to be taking this to Fresno State. I'm going to be taking this to Cal Poly Slow. And I have a ton of other colleges pending. So if you're a college student, if you're involved in a pro-life club, a Christian club, a philosophy club, a Catholic club, and you care about having these conversations on your campus and inviting people who have different opinions, then do that. Bring me to your college or university campus. We're going to have a Q&A session, session afterwards where people can engage with me regardless of their opinions on the issue of abortion. So hit me up. Let me know. Add your college to my university speaking tour. Stop. We'll be right back. Alrighty, so welcome back to the show. As I said, Obviously, the argument no uterus, no opinion is a sexist argument that has no basis in reality because fathers should care about their children, whether those children are in the womb or not. And all men should be speaking out against injustice, whether it's their children or not. And abortion ends the lives of babies in the womb. So everyone should be opposed to that. And men have a pretty high calling to defend women and children. So men should care about this. Obviously, we know that Children fare better when they have their father, and most ideally, their mother and father married, raising their biological children. But let's talk more specifically about why men should care about abortion, why men should care to be fathers of the unborn children that they created and whose lives are maybe on the line, are maybe at risk because maybe his girlfriend or wife is contemplating abortion, and legally, he's silenced in our country. If she chooses to do that, he can do nothing to stop her short of physically actually stopping her, which could lead to a whole nother mess of legal problems because of our screwed up legal system that allows the killing of children. So I have a few thoughts here as to why men should care in the first place. And, and hopefully this is helpful as we debunk more of this argument and, and look at how we can sort of rebuild this culture and how men treat women and children in the first place. So... I'm going to talk to the men in our country, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice. Here's why you should care, okay? I want you to care firstly about this issue and to speak up and out against it for your own good. I want you to indulge in selfishness, which is very easy to do. And I want you to care about this issue for your own good. So there's a 2012 study from psychologists from UC Riverside, Stanford, and the University of British Columbia that found that parents experience greater happiness and meaning in life than non-parents. Shocker. Of course it brings you joy to look at a child who is biologically half of you that you see parts of you or your spouse in as you have the opportunity, privilege, and honor of raising that child. Parenthood is hard, of course, but, but naturally, 
those who have children experience a higher level of happiness and meaning in your life. You have something very important to live for, namely the development of a human being who is going to be ruined or excel in this life in large part, not, not exclusively, but in large part in how you treat them and how you pour into them. So you should care about this issue because you should want to be a father. You should want more meaning and happiness in your life. And you can't have that if your girlfriend or wife is contemplating killing your child. Furthermore, you should want those in your life, other men and friends, to have that type of happiness and that type of meaning. And it's very difficult for many men to get that meaning and happiness when they have no say and no voice regarding whether the women that they've impregnated are going to kill their unborn children. Secondly, you should care about this issue because men are made to protect the, more, the vulnerable people and to fight evil. And, and, and this is evidenced in really how we're created. I mean, if you want to talk about like a natural law perspective here, men are more physical than women, not just sexually, not just with a sexual drive, but muscularly, right? Like we're, we're literally more physical than women. And that is for a good reason. There's a purpose for that. And one of the purposes arguably, is that we were made to be the protectors of women and children and those who are being victimized by forces of evil. We are the best positioned to be the protectors of women and children. Now, unfortunately, right, that passion and that strength that men have and that drive can be used for horrible things. And those who advance abortion in the abortion movement who are men are feeding that deeper and darker part of them. Many abortionists are men, right? That passion and strength has been twisted to dark, dark ends. But channeled correctly, the passion, strength, and drive that men typically naturally have should be used for good things, should be used to stop evil like this. So I want to ask you a question, right? What breaks your heart and what boils your blood? Now, I think most men would think of some of the more atrocious actions against the human kind, right? Against human beings. So sex trafficking, child slavery, physically abusive husbands, rapists, murderers, those who sexualize children, right? That typically for your normal modern man is going to break their heart and boil their blood. That makes us want to find those perpetrators and, and, and show them one, right? We want to end those people who are doing that. At the very least, put them in jail for life. Keep them away from victimizing the vulnerable. Now, this is what I want to offer to you. Abortion is wrong for the same reasons that we believe those other things are wrong. Now, our country celebrates abortion as women's health care, as reproductive health care. And sadly, many, many, many men support abortion as well. They stand with their female friends and, and say, shout your abortion and say women's health care and reproductive health care is health care. And yet the cognitive dissonance is not even acknowledged because abortion is wrong for the same reasons that pro-choice men hate sex trafficking, rape, and child slavery. So what I would offer to you, particularly, of course, if you're pro-life, to share with the men in your life is to gently challenge them to consider that reality. That if they hate rape 
child sex trafficking and child slavery that they should hate abortion because abortion is a violent action that is perpetrated on an innocent child that leads to that child's death. That's literally the same reason slavery and sex trafficking is wrong. Violent actions committed against young children that can or do lead to their death. And so, we, so men are gonna have to come to the realization that unborn children are humans. <laughs> this, is, this is scientific fact. And so we should be treating them and rescuing them in, in the same way that we're committed to doing that with born children. So here's a thought experiment for you men, okay? What if you saw someone beating a toddler or a baby on the street? What if you stepped into a clinic that you thought was sort of a, uh, just a health clinic where you could get uh, condoms or you could get uh, shots or you could get blood work and you accidentally stepped into a clinic that kills toddlers and you saw a staff worker beating the pulp out of a toddler or newborn's face, what would you do at that point? I think that you would run up, tear him off that child, sock the living pulp out of him, short of killing him, call the cops, tell them what happened and do everything you could to save that little baby. That's what abortion does. Abortion bruises a little baby, dismembers their limbs as they're bleeding out in the amniotic sac and then removes them dead from their mother's womb. Abortion is the worst form of child abuse because it's child abuse that doesn't only bruise a baby, it kills a baby. It's child abuse that ends in homicide, in feticide. Let's take it one step further. What if the baby you saw being beaten was your baby? What if it was your newborn and you walked into the nursery and a man had entered your room and was beating the pulp out of your baby? That's what abortion does. And for too many years, the men of the fathers of the children in their girlfriend's wombs have stood by and either pressured their girlfriend to kill their son or daughter or said, your body, your choice. I'll support you either way. That is not manhood. That is not masculinity. It is childish. It is cowardice. And it leads to the death of the very child that you helped to create. So if you would be infuriated by the type of actions I just laid out, you should be infuriated by abortion. Because the unborn is the most defenseless member, just as defenseless as a newborn, and therefore just as deserving of your protection and your voice speaking out against the evil that has taken the lives of 60 million babies since 1973. So men, pro-life is simply the radical idea that the unborn child in your wife or girlfriend's or stranger's womb, in the case of a fling, is just as deserving of your protection and defense as your toddler would be. And any reason you give to say that the unborn child is not as deserving of your protection as your toddler would be, would be a difference that you could use to justify mistreating born people. Because born people differ from one another in the same way that the unborn child differs from us. This is the reality. True masculinity and true manhood speaks up and out against evil and on behalf of those who have no voice. And the unborn child are the most voiceless members of our society. So where are the men? What happened? Where are they? Sadly, many women who reject abortion and actually choose life 
right? So they don't get an abortion. Like they give birth to their baby. They even do that alone. They do that without the help of a man. Citing CDC and US Census Bureau statistics, the website Single Mother Guide reports that quote, four out of 10 children were born to unwed mothers in our country. One in four children under the age of 18, a total of about 16.4 million, are being raised without a father. One in four. And about 11 million, and out of the 11 million single parent families with children under 18, more than 80% were headed by single mothers. Where are the men? This is the fatherless generation. And here's the, here's the problem, right? Here's the consequence. When men no longer take fathering their born children seriously, they won't take fathering their unborn children seriously. And they will be perfectly willing and happy to stand by and cheer and support their girlfriend or wife's choice to end the life of that child through dismemberment. And so we get studies from the Guttmacher Institute in 2005 called Reasons U.S. Women Have Abortions. Again, Guttmacher Institute being no friend to the pro-life movement. And their results found that the reasons most frequently cited were that having a child would interfere with a woman's education, work, or ability to care for dependents. 74% of women said that that was the reason they got an abortion. 73% said that she could not afford to have a baby now. Okay. And 48% said that she did not want to be a single mother or was having relationship problems. Almost all of these reasons given by women, while not justifications for abortion certainly, can be traced back to the absence of men, to absentee men who are still emotionally pubescent boys who are choosing their satisfaction and their life over the life of the child that they created. Look at these reasons. It would interfere with a woman's ability to care for dependents. Who should be helping with that? The father. She could not afford to have a baby now. Who should be helping with the income, if not providing the entirety of the income? The father. She did not want to be a single mother. That's literally him not being there or she was having relationship problems with the father. Where are the men? What has happened and how did we get here? What happened to our social fabric wherein there used to be real shame in a pregnancy out of wedlock? And there was even more shame in obtaining an illegal abortion prior to 1973. And when there was a pregnancy out of wedlock, most men stepped up and married the mother of their child. Shotgun weddings, this is the whole thing, right? Most men were stepping up because there was a culture and a social fabric that was built around shared values that said, dude, it's time to man up. That's your child. I don't care if it was a fling. I don't care if you don't love the woman. You have a responsibility now. You have something deeper to live for. There's someone else relying on you. The child that you are responsible so this is a huge question, right? How did we get here? What happened to our social fabric? I don't know if I can answer it exhaustively. I think a whole um, dissertation or book could be written on this, obviously. But here's a start to an answer, okay? I ideas shape beliefs. And beliefs drive behavior. 
or decisions. And decisions have consequences, right? So when you so ideas will take root in a culture, those culture and, and those ideas become beliefs. Those beliefs drive decisions, and decisions obviously have consequences, unless it's just, you know, which flavor of ice cream you get, but moral decisions have consequences. So prior to the 1930s, Americans largely shared a belief in a Judeo-Christian worldview, wherein the structure of the world, right, and our reality, and the, and the idea of objective truths were most reasonably explained by the idea and existence of a God. That was the shared value system. And so, the shared value system in objective truths drove behavior because, hey, some things are actually wrong and some things are actually right. And the things that are wrong, you should not do. And the things that are right, you should do. And most of those decisions of moral concern were shared by the large majority of Americans. Enter postmodernism, which was popularized really right around this time in the 1930s which relies on the belief in relativism, right? So postmodernism is the idea that there are no macro narratives. There are no narratives that hold true for all people at all times and in all places. There are no explanations of reality that are objectively true for all people at all times and in all places. Postmodernism says that what matters is the micro narrative. What matters is the individual experience, the individual opinion. And whatever those opinions are, whatever micro-narrative that you want to construct for your life is true because it's true for you. It's the individual narrative that matters, not the macro-narrative that seeks to provide structure and make sense of reality for all people at all times and in all places. And and relativism is required in order for postmodernism to work because relativism says that, that there are no objective truths. There's only subjective truths. And in fact, all truth claims are personal subjective truth claims. So you have to have relativism to have postmodernism. So this radical shift in how people thought about reality and their own lives helped catapult us into the sexual revolution, which was the practical rejection of natural law and objectivism. Because the, the sexual escapades of that generation during the sexual revolution would have been not just frowned upon, but loudly decried by most Americans 20 years prior, 30 years prior. So this idea that the micro-narrative matters and your own individual reality matters helped provide the foundation for the sexual revolution that said, if it feels good, do it. Whatever works for you, that's fine. And I'm not in a place to judge your decisions because all that matters is the happiness and the meaning in life that you subjectively create for yourself. And if my meaning and subjective reality doesn't align with yours, then that's fine. We're both true. If they're both true. They're just true for us. That's what postmodernism and relativism says. And so, it's my own personal micro-narrative that matters. Whatever brings me pleasure and satisfaction is the highest good because there is no objective narrative or reality that I'm beholden to or that I'm responsible to align my life with. 
So this is the foundation that, that launched us into the sexual revolution, that broke down the social fabric, that, that encouraged the value system of parenting and fatherhood, and would have frowned upon men who allowed their wives or girlfriends to get abortions or celebrate it as healthcare. Now, moving along in this narrative, enter cultural prophet C.S. Lewis, someone I'm sure you're familiar with, a former atheist who really set out to disprove the claims of Christianity and could not reconcile them with reality, or rather reconcile them with objective reality as making the most sense of the human system and the human story. And so Lewis saw the Western world beginning to reject this natural law, this tradition of objective right and objective wrong, and embrace postmodernism and embrace relativism. And he saw this being taught in the school systems of the day, because this was when postmodernism took root in America. And so knowing that any society that accepted such a system of education that rejected the natural law tradition was doomed to destruction, he penned his very seminal work called The Abolition of Man in 1943. And this, this is right at the time that postmodernism is taking off and being taught in universities, in the very midst of the popularization of postmodernism. And his idea in his book was that the head rules the belly through the chest. Now, what does that mean? Okay, now this is going to explain how we got here. Okay, this is the question we're answering. How did men get here? And why are modern men the way they are? The idea that the head rules the belly through the chest is the idea that your head represents your intellect and your belly represents your gut. So this represents your desire and your appetites, right? It's the, it's the animalistic portion of man the desires to just do something and, and make decisions that satisfy us. And the chest represents the value system. Trained right responses. The system of objective truths. So your intellect rules over your gut and desires through your value system. Through your trained right moral responses that assume an objective moral system. But postmodernism, the ideological father of relativism, denies and attacks the very idea of the chest, of objective reality, of value systems that hold true for all people, that, that are truly objectively right and wrong. And so C.S. Lewis goes on in his book to explain the consequences of removing the chest, of removing the value system that provided the social fabric to make right decisions. So he says in Abolition of Man, he says that the chest, this value system, is the indispensable liaison officer between cerebral man and visceral man, the gut. For by his intellect, he is mere spirit, and by his appetite, mere animal. So what separates men and makes us moral figures is our chest, our value systems, our right decision-making, our moral compass. Without that, we are either mere spirit of intellect or mere animal by, by satisfying cravings and desires that come on a whim of emotion. And so he goes on to describe what this is going to do, what this has done, and it, it is incredibly culturally prophetic for where we are today. And this is his seminal paragraph. He says, such is the tragic comedy of our situation. We continue to clamor for those very qualities 
where we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more driven or dynamic or self-sacrificing men or more creativity. In sort of a ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We cast straight and bid the geldings be fruitful. Incredibly prophetic for the time that we are in today. This is the abolition of man. The abolition of man is the removal of the chest, the atrophy of the chest. If you remove that and you tell men that there are no objective truths that they should align their lives by, there's no value system or macro narrative that wherein you should, you should respect, there's no objective law from a creator that you should obey to make your life better. There's none of that. It's just your cravings that matter in satisfying those cravings and building your own micro-narrative in your own life. If you tell that to men, you shouldn't be shocked when they live their lives like that because you've removed the foundation from which they would make correct moral decisions in the first place. This is, in part, how we got to where we are because abortion used to be frowned upon. Out-of-wedlock pregnancies used to be frowned upon. But then men who rose up and fathered those children and married the women that they impregnated were not ashamed because at least you stepped up and made the honorable decision. Well, honor requires an objective value system or law wherein you judge behaviors without which there is no such thing as honorable. There's just personal preference. This is partly how we got where we are. The atrophy of the chest, the removal of the chest. We have men without chest, but we demand the function of the chest after telling them that there is no chest. So there's a very deep irony to the silence and absence of fathers in the abortion debate. Here's what that irony is. The pro-choice movement, which is arguably the worst consequence of the sexual revolution, and which was fueled by postmodernism and relativism, screams for men to be silent because it's a woman's body. But then those same people mourn for the fatherless generation, the absentee fathers and the effect that it has on born children. They demand the removal of the organ, the chest. No, men, we don't want your honor. We don't want you stepping up to the plate to try to parent the children you've created. Shut up, you're a man, no uterus, no opinion. So we removed the, we demand the removal of the organ, the value system in the chest, and then demand the function of the chest, demand the function of the organ. But you remove the foundation on which provides the reason for men to be moral in the first place. And so we're shocked when we find traitors in our midst. We've castrated and bid the geldings be fruitful. This partly explains where we got where we are today in the fatherless generation and the silence of men on the issue of abortion. Now in one second, we're going to wrap up our conversation and look at how we can fix the problem of relativism and its bad fruit, which is men without chests. Lastly, we'll look at what men can do to help fight abortion and stand up for women and children. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content from the front lines of the abortion wars, then head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted and become a patron of the show. Listen, I do this work full time. I've committed my life to speaking against abortion 
simplifying the issue for the American public and equipping Christian leaders, lay people, young people, and pro-life advocates to engage, defend life, and be a voice for the unborn. And a good friend of mine and colleague in the pro-life movement once said that there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. That's because killing babies is very profitable, while saving them is very costly. Saving them is costly. And part of the goal of this show is to equip people to defend life, to save lives, to change minds, and to change hearts. But I can't do that without your help. So if you want to help expand the reach of this show, expand the reach of this show to the audience, and equip more people to have a one-stop shop where they can receive training, education, encouragement, and equipping to be bold voice in this generation, then please consider becoming a patron of the show. Again, patreon.com slash unaborted. We'll be right back. Alrighty, well, welcome back to the show. Now, we just did a fairly exhaustive examination of what I think explains, in part, how modern man got to where he is today. Is the abolition of man, the atrophy of the chest, the removal of the very value system that explains objective truth and acts as an incentive for correct behavior in the first place. And so, of course, we have men without chests, without virtue, without honor, who have no interest in stepping up to the plate to fight for the life of their unborn child and be a father, unaware of the fact that that is going to provide the most happiness and meaning in their life in the first place. So we've inverted reality. We've traded the truth of God for a lie. We've called good evil and evil good and now kill our own children in order to have sexual freedom, autonomy, and bodily rights. This part, in part, explains where we got today. Now, I don't have an exhaustive solution for this. Again, we don't have the time to provide all of the steps that we should take culturally to attempt to solve this problem. But um, here are maybe some thoughts for us to begin at. So how do we fix this problem in the first place? Well, I think for the current generation that is entrenched in postmodernism, is entrenched in relativism, is entrenched in the belief that their own truth is the highest good. Their own truth is all that matters. They're not beholden to a law by which they'll be judged. They're not beholden to objective reality wherein they can become more honorable or they can become a worse person. It's just their own micro-narrative that matters. And so therefore, whatever decisions they make that lead to their perceived happiness are the good, right, and holy decisions because it's, it's all about the micro-narrative. It's all about me. Well, I think to address that generation, the current generation that's already been entrenched in that system of thought for five years, a decade, two, three, four decades, is by providing really good and beautiful examples of a different story, of a different narrative. Pro-life individuals, those of a Judeo-Christian worldview, those who believe in a lawgiver, in an objective law, in objective truth, and, 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 in a, and in a being that they're going to be held responsible to and judged for their decisions, those people should be living out the 
value of the unborn child, the goodness of marriage, the importance of married parenting of your biological children. We should be the ones living out what we believe and painting a different picture of reality, a different way to live. And those of a Judeo-Christian worldview, of course, are just as prone to sin, are just as prone to divorce. But we do have a God that we believe in that, um, that provides reasons for why to live a moral life in the first place. In other words, it's not just chaos. This life is not just chaos where you should uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That there's actually eternal significance to the decisions that you make. And that at the end of the age, you'll be judged for all decisions made, whether good or bad. For, for the systems of thought and religion that believe that, we should be living out a different picture of family, of life, and of reality of long marriages, of committed marriages, of gentle, loving, firm, strong fathers, of loving, gracious mothers, of obedient children, of children that were allowed to live in the first place, that we should be painting a different picture of the beauty of life that is based off of eternal principles that used to be shared by the majority of Americans just a hundred years ago or less. The story of your life and a thriving family will tell a better narrative than the story of the fatherless generation, obviously. That's maybe one way that we can help fix the problem and address the current generation who are so entrenched in their subjectivist, postmodernist worldview that it will be very difficult to change them by just offering arguments. We have to live out a different reality. And the statistics bear this out, right? Children fare far better when married by, when raised by married parents who are their biological parents. And married couples are generally much more happier. Parents who have children are generally much more happier and have a more meaningful life. Those who don't abort their children are much happier. Those who do, usually have a lot more emotional trauma and regret to deal with. So the statistics bear this out. But for future generations, how can we begin to solve this problem? Because this worldview is already so entrenched, right? This is what is being taught by our universities. Relativism is the dominant reigning worldview that is assumed and taught in our public universities. So how can we help address this problem the, the abolition of man, the removal of the value system and the chest that drives right behavior for future generations? Well, I believe that education is part of the answer. Now, the academy functions as sort of a, a cultural crystal ball, if you will. The, the philosophy of today's academy becomes the gauge of the culture's philosophy 30 years later, 20 years later, typically. The ideas that take root in the university and then are taught sort of dictate where the culture will be 20 or 30 years later. 
And education is really what got us into this mess, right? It was the 1930s, 1940s, where our university started teaching relativism, started teaching postmodernism, started removing the very foundation of objective reality that you need to make sense of reality and to drive right behaviors. So I believe education is part of the answer to get us out of this. But that's not going to be an easy path because it could be that our universities are beyond saving. <laughs> it could be that the universities pushing these narratives are, are too far gone to reverse. So we may have to look at alternative forms of education. And in 2019, we have a lot of really good options. There are amazing charter schools. There are amazing homeschool. There's amazing online learning. There are amazing liberal arts colleges still. There are amazing private institutions that are more of a classical education, though they may not necessarily be a religious institution. And of course, we should do all we can to reform our public universities that used to acknowledge the self-evident reality that there is objective truth and that we should be teaching that to our young people. So let us set a good example that is a different picture of family and of children and of procreation and of reproduction and of meaning and of fathering and of life to a current generation entrenched in the abolition of man that says, you do you, whatever feels good, do it. And if people get hurt along the way, I mean, you do you. We should also be seeking to educate the next generation with timeless principles that have for millennia provided the foundation you need to incentivize and make sense of making right decisions in the first place. So lastly, I want to talk a little bit more practically about what men can actually do to help end abortion, right? So we've kind of looked at maybe what we can do and where we can go philosophically and ideologically, right? How do we actually address the larger problem in culture of men living from a subjectivist approach to life? that provides no reason for them to even be good or pursue honor in the first place. But just specifically as it pertains to the issue of abortion, what can men do to help end abortion? Because we know that men functioning in their proper way will speak out against evil that victimizes and abuses women and children. And abortion does just that. It kills a baby and the mother becomes the second victim in abortion. She could be physically injured. She certainly becomes emotionally scarred, if not immediately, at some point in the future when she comes to terms with what she did. So as protectors, as those who are literally physically stronger and more emotionally and psychologically driven to provide and to protect, what can men do? So I just want to lay out a few points, and these are things that you can implement into your life and that you can take back to your churches as well because this is a propitious moment in our culture in the abortion wars, and it's time for men to stand up. It's time for men to stop being silent when women choose to arrange the death of their unborn children. So firstly and most simply, right, most obviously, men have to, we need to have nothing to do with the evil of abortion. Men need to not be complicit in abortion, obviously. We've looked at the reasons that women give for obtaining abortions, and almost all of them are explained by an absentee father. If every father of an unborn child that he was responsible for creating went to the mother and said, we're going to have this baby, 
I'm going to work my tail off for you guys. This is a life. This is my son or daughter, and I will do whatever it takes to make this an easy choice for you. I will support you. I will stand by you. If every man did that, the majority of abortions would disappear. Now, many women who are driven by selfishness and want to not even have the knowledge that they have a child that their maybe boyfriend is largely helping raise because they want to pursue their own ends in their own life will still choose abortion. But most women would not. Most women would respect and honor that. So men have to have nothing to do with the evil of abortion, obviously, firstly. That needs to stop. But also, we need to help other men to step up. If you're pro-life and you're a guy, you need to be speaking to other men in your life to encourage them to step up. Do it graciously, but do it boldly. Far too many men are pro-choice, and that is a that is a, a disappointing stain on masculinity in our country that so many men think masculinity is standing next to a woman at a rally and saying, shout your abortion, or reproductive health care is health care. That's not masculinity. Here's a real practical thing I'd encourage you to do. You might think this is a little gnarly, but if you believe abortion is the evil that it is, it's actually a very rational thing to do. I want you to keep a short clip of abortion victim photography on your smartphone and encourage people or give them the opportunity to view it when you're in conversations on abortion. I have one on my phone. If you'd like to reach out to me, through social media, I will, I will actually send you and share that file with you. And you can, it's 55 seconds, you can gently ask a friend in a conversation on abortion, hey, would you be all right if I showed you what a first trimester abortion looks like? Because if abortion is healthcare and healthcare is a good thing, then we should be able to look at the results of healthcare if healthcare is abortion. And that is going to, that is going to disgust, offend, and infuriate most men. And they're going to have to deal with the cognitive dissonance between thinking abortion is healthcare and being disgusted by what they just saw. Secondly, as men, we need to encourage women and remind them that abortion is not a tool of feminism, but of male chauvinism. That is what abortion is. And for the sisters in our lives, whether they're sisters in Christ from a religious sense, or whether they're literally your sister, or whether they're just your female friends, we need to be telling the women in our lives that abortion is not a tool of feminism. Abortion allows men to treat women as sexual objects for their enjoyment while avoiding all of the responsibilities that come along with sex. It allows men to more easily dehumanize women and just treat them as objects. Abortion is the favorite tool of sex traffickers, pimps, and playboys because it allows them to use women for their own ends and then write them off as pieces of flesh used for their enjoyment while avoiding all the responsibilities of the childs and the children that were likely created from their, from their irresponsibility. We need to be sharing that with women because if... People say they're pro-choice because they're a feminist. We need to be telling them that the only true feminists are pro-life because they reject the male chauvinistic worldview that uses them and discards them and their children and kills unborn women. Thirdly, we need to train for battle. We need to be equipped to engage. If you're, if you're a man and if you're pro-life, but you don't feel like you know how to engage the culture and defend the unborn children who you think it's wrong to kill, you need to train yourself for battle. If you're not involved in full-time or part-time pro-life activism, you likely have never been equipped to defend the unborn and engage with those in your life who support abortion rights. 
So train yourself. Listen to this podcast on a weekly basis. Subscribe to my newsletter, which you can do at my website, sethgruber.com. And read pro-life books. One of the best books to read is The Case for Life by Scott Klusendorf, my mentor and boss, because that enables you to become bulletproof on the abortion wars as a spokesperson, as an ambassador for the unborn children. It is an accessible book, and an, but a fairly exhaustive resource. So train yourself for battle. Fourthly, men should be giving generously to pro-life organizations that work full-time to rescue children. You may not be in a position to where you can give your time to volunteering in the pro-life movement, but perhaps you are in a position to give financially. You need to help others help the unborn. If you don't have the time or the calling in your life to give of your time, you need to give of your funds. Now, obviously you can support me, right? You can support this podcast. You can support me to speak full time, but there are other organizations that do phenomenal work that you need to look into supporting because they're the ones on the front lines and everyone has a role to play to end murder when murder is legal. When murder becomes legal in a society, everyone has a role to end that because the, the, the evilest thing someone could do is to legalize atrocious behavior because it sends a message to the culture that this behavior is acceptable. So it requires all of us to play a part. Well, one of the easiest ways you can play a part is by giving of your money to organizations that help the unborn and help women. Lastly, start a pro-life ministry at your church. Okay, If you're, a, if you're involved in a church as a Christian, uh, as a Protestant, as a Catholic, as a religious Jew, um, you, need to, you need to do whatever you can to create a culture of life at your church. Most churches do nothing to speak out against abortion and equip the saints, equip the believers, equip their congregation to defend life and engage the culture. And when a million babies are being dismembered every year in the United States of America, we need to be equipping our people to engage. And so here's some things you could do at your church. Firstly, organize a post-abortion Bible study because the Guttmacher Institute says that over 30% of abortions are performed on women claiming identification with a Christian faith. So this has impacted and wounded an enormous amount of women and men in our church who are post-abortive. Many of them have found healing. Many of them haven't. Many of them are deeply wounded, emotionally traumatized, or they're even rationalizing and justifying their decision has a good and necessary decision for their life. So these people need our help. They need our grace. They need our love. They need a place where they can be honest, raw, real, authentic, and find healing. Secondly, bring me to speak at your church. Most pastors are not equipped to address this issue well in a full-length sermon from the pulpit, but it needs to be done. And so consider inviting me to speak to your church. There's a few reasons why that's important. One, it it could potentially save a life because it could discourage abortion from people in the congregation who might literally at that moment be contemplating abortion. It calls people to healing who have been wounded by abortion and gives them a gracious way to respond by repenting and finding healing and interacting with their pastors in their church. And lastly, it equips pro-life individuals who have never known how to engage on how to engage. So there's a lot of positive reasons to have someone like me who does this full-time speak to your church. And thirdly, start a prayer team at your church on the issue of abortion, particularly outside of abortion clinics.
Try to organize a team of people who will pray on a weekly basis and stand outside of the very clinics that dismember little babies and try to speak to women as they walk in. I'll offer them resources, pray for them, and pray together as a church to end the greatest human rights violation in human history. And lastly, advertise your and your church's willingness to provide housing, financial assistance, or adoption to pregnant women in your city contemplating abortion. Put that as an ad in the paper. Put that out as an ad on websites, on your church website. Advertise that in your business that you work for. Let everyone know that you and your family and you and your church are offering financial assistance, housing, and adoption. Parents and families who are saying, we will adopt the baby of a woman who is contemplating killing that baby. And let the city and community that you live in know that. Post signs. Have it, have it outside of an abortion clinic. Let people know that they have other options. These are some things that you can do together at your church. And so these are quite a few things that we as men can do to fight abortion, help end abortion, and truly stand up and fight for and defend women and children. So I hope this was helpful. I think this, these are some beginning thoughts to how we can begin engaging with the culture, encouraging men to be men, because in the end, real men are pro-life. Real men are not silent when, when institutions seek to, to dehumanize women and use them for financial gain to kill their children. Men speak out against injustice and systems that, that prey on the most vulnerable members of our society. So share this with a man you know. Share this with a pro-life man you know and share this with a pro-choice man you know and have conversations and encourage the men in your life to step up and defend life. Thanks for joining me today. Head on over to iTunes, YouTube, Spotify. Give us a review and a rating. That really helps. It helps us climb, climb the rating ladder on iTunes and that'll help us reach more people as well. If you want to learn more about about these conversations about abortion, engage with me online. Um, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B-E-R.com to get on my newsletter and get regular content in your inbox to get pro-life training videos on how you can engage and view my speaking schedule if you want to come hear me speak live about these issues. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh.